Good morning. Have you ever had a period in your life where suddenly everything about your life changed? Talking about one of those watershed moments, like for instance, your first kid is born, everything changed. Okay, immediately you repent from every nap that you ever missed earlier in your life, right? Okay, another watershed moment, you get married. Right? Suddenly, everything that's hers is hers, and what's mine is ours. Okay? It's a watershed moment. Okay, sometimes in life, you have those moments, and afterwards, everything is different. Okay, for me, I vividly remember the summer of 2005. Okay, in that summer, I graduated college, I married Rachel, and I moved from the only home I had ever known in Oklahoma down to Texas to begin our new life together. Okay, everything changed in 05. I know that uh, technically you become an adult when you turn 18, but I didn't have to start adulting until the summer of 2005. Okay? Watershed moment. Because of all that life change, therefore, everything would now be different. All right, I want you to notice the first word of Romans chapter 12, because with it, Paul indicates a complete watershed moment. Romans 12 verse 1, he says, therefore. You know, I will never forget my old uh, doddering Greek teacher, who as we were translating texts would always say, every time you see the word therefore in a text, you have to ask yourself, what's it there for? Which I thought was kind of clever. Okay, but he's right. Why does the author put this word in there? Go on to the next slide. Let's look at that first verse of this. Okay, what is it there for? What have we just finished studying? Okay, for the last three chapters in this book, we've looked at how God can be faithful to the covenant. How God can be faithful to both Jews and Gentiles. Okay, before that, we talked about how Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant. Because of that gospel story, His death, His burial, resurrection, we can join Him in the restoration of all things. Death is conquered. Sin is taken away. Satan has no more power over us. We are telling the ultimate story of humanity in Romans. Okay, Romans 1-11 through teaches us that if we are disciples of Jesus, everything is made right and nothing can therefore separate you from the love of God. Why? Because your God is faithful. Therefore, Okay, so in view of all of that, now that Paul has laid out this detailed teaching on the gospel, therefore, how do we live? What do we do? All right, in Romans, Paul spends 11 chapters on what we need to know and what we need to understand. That's what we've talked about these last few months. Then he'll spend the next five chapters teaching us what difference that makes. Okay, so what? What does it change about how you and I live our lives that the gospel of Jesus has accomplished all of these great things? What does it matter that Jesus has fulfilled the covenant? Okay, what does Paul say? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, okay, in view of everything we've talked about, right, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. All right, the problem with a text like Romans 12, verse 1 is twofold. 
Okay, in the first place, this is so far removed culturally from anything that we've experienced that we don't have the imagination for it. Okay, we can't visualize what Paul is talking about in this verse. Okay, and secondly, if you've been raised in church, you've probably heard this verse so many times, you've heard it read, you've heard it talked about, that it's kind of lost its punch. Okay, now it's more of a t-shirt slogan or a tweet than it is the living, breathing Word of God. Okay, familiarity breeds contempt. We need a reminder of just how powerful it is what Paul is telling us with this verse. Okay, so I want you to think for just a moment of what it would have been like to be there in Rome. What it would have been like to be part of this house church. It's probably a small gathering of believers. Probably there's no one, uh, one gathering in Rome more than about 40 people. Okay, that's about the maximum number you can fit in somebody's living room in their world. Okay, so imagine you're sitting with this small group of people hearing this text for the first time. You're either a Jew or a Gentile. You've just finished hearing about how you're reconciled to each other, you're reconciled to God, and now you're hearing this text. And you think about these people. They had the privilege, they had the honor of living in the capital. Okay, and this is not just the capital of their country. This is the capital of the entire world. Okay, there's nothing in our world today equivalent to Rome. Rome was everything. It's the economic center of the world. It's the cultural center of the world. It's the militaristic center of the world. It is by far the religious center of the world. All roads lead to Rome. That's not just about commerce. That's about everything in life. Rome is the center of the world. Okay, and they lived in a world in which people worshipped hundreds of gods. You constantly lived your life in fear that you might have upset one of the gods or you didn't offer something right to one of the gods and they're going to get angry at you and fail to bless you. Okay, the Romans had to carry out all of the right religiouses, the religious observances to make sure they kept all of these various gods' favor. Okay, so quite naturally, the biggest temples in the world, the best temples in the world, dedicated to all this pantheon of gods, were sitting in Rome. You know, you look at our empire, uh, we have a Starbucks or McDonald's on every corner. In their empire, they had a pagan temple on every corner. In fact, a large percentage of business practices were carried out in Roman temples because it makes good business sense. You go, you offer a sacrifice for the sake of your business, make sure the gods will bless the business that you're doing, and then to seal the business, you sacrifice an animal, and then you get to eat the meat with all your business partners. Right? The temples in the ancient world often function kind of like restaurants. right? Because the meat that you sacrifice, then you get to cook and you eat. It's a cultural thing. Okay? So why is this important? Okay, I tell you this because Rome in the first century was bloody. Okay? In your normal walking around living, you would regularly witness animal sacrifices. Right? In fact, I decided against it this morning, but I almost showed a video from YouTube of a lamb having its throat slit on an altar this morning just so that we could have a visual of what that would look like because it looks brutal. Myra, I didn't do it, okay? I just said I thought about it. I almost did it. 
Okay, because in order to get at Romans 12, verse 1, you need to imagine what it's like to live in a world in which you regularly saw the life leave an animal's eyes in order to appreciate Paul's language of sacrifice. Okay, in our day, religious officials are mostly teachers and administrators. But in the ancient world, to be a religious official meant that most of what you did was butchery. Okay, I want you to imagine what this would be like. Okay, in ancient Rome, just as a part of regularly walking down the street, you would hear the cries of various animals. Okay, you would have that smell in your nose as you just went about your daily life. Okay, you would literally just smell blood as you were walking around the streets. You would have that taste in the back of your throat as you just lived your normal life of animal sacrifice. And that was religion. Okay, now, I don't tell you this in an effort to be graphic or cruel. I wasn't going to show you a video just for the shock value. Okay, I'm certainly thankful that I've never had to butcher an animal as part of my job. Right, but I tell you all of this because Paul has just laid out 11 chapters of dense theology proclaiming Jesus is Lord. We are saved by grace. Through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, we've been reconciled to God. We've been adopted into this covenant family by the gospel of Jesus. Paul says, here's the best news ever told. The covenant promises we've all been waiting for are finally here. You, church, are the redeemed people of God. Therefore... Your responsibility is not to go worship like the rest of the world and offer animals on an altar. Okay, because that's relatively easy when you think about it. What you do is you take an animal or you buy an animal on the spot, you give it to the priest, the priest sacrifices it, and then you say, okay, I've done my religion, now I can turn and go and live my life basically like I want to. Your responsibility as the church, though, is not to bring something to worship, hand it over to a priest, and walk away. Paul says if the gospel is true, if Jesus really did the things that he claimed, if his sacrifice on the cross really is what I say it is, then your responsibility is to come before God and offer something so much more precious to you. Your responsibility, if you really understand what it means to be saved by grace, is to go before God and offer yourself. You want to know what true worship is? You want to know what real religion is? It's offering yourself as a living sacrifice. All right, so here's point number one if you're taking notes. That's that what God really wants is you. What God really wants is you. Okay, I think I've admitted this to you before, uh, but I am an expert worship critic. Okay? I can attend a worship service and critique pretty much everything that happens in that service. I can critique how worship leaders led songs, what songs he picked, and how the slideshow worked. Okay, I can critique scripture reading. I can critique guys leading prayers. Right, my absolute best skill, though, is critiquing preaching. Right? If I hear somebody else preach, I can tell you what was good, bad, and ugly about it. What could have been done differently to make it so much better. I am blessed with the spiritual gift of worship service criticism. And I am extremely confident that all my criticisms are right. If everyone would just do it more like I think they ought to do it, it would be so much better. Okay. Now, 
How interested do you think that God is in all of my critiques? Yeah, I don't think he's interested in my critiques at all. Okay, but if worship is about me, if worship is about meeting my needs, if it's about meeting my preferences and my expectations, then I should start with what I want. I should start with what I think I need, and then I should go and seek where I think I can best get a church to take care of me. Okay, if it starts with what I want, then my critiques matter quite a bit. Okay, if worship really starts with what I want, then what the church should be is just a marketplace in which all the churches are competing against each other to try and attract the most people by having the least amount of stuff in our services that people can critique, right? On the other hand, if Paul is right and what God really wants is us, then my thinking has to change and suddenly it's not about me finding a church that will best meet my needs, Suddenly, it's about me seeking out how I can die to myself for the service of God's kingdom. And what I need to do is find a church that helps me to offer myself. Okay, and then the point of the church is not to try and attract as many Christians as possible. It instead becomes about learning how to serve people around me, how to love people around me, even when they're not very lovable. Okay, I should go to a church that helps me love better not one that fits most of my critiques the best. See the difference in those two approaches? Does that make sense at all? I see five people nodding at me. Okay. Okay, and don't hear me wrong. I still have preferences for worship, and I think we need to do what we do well. I think there's no excuse for us to gather together and offer God less than our best. But I think the focus has to be about bringing myself to God and about learning how to sacrifice myself and live as a sacrifice. It cannot be about me trying to serve myself. Okay, what God really wants is you. Okay, Number two, if that's true, then worship isn't something that you can do on a Sunday and then just be a quote-unquote good person for the rest of the week. Right, you think about the way that worship worked for the majority of Roman citizens. Okay, you took an animal, you took it to the altar, you left it with the priest, and then you turned around and you went back to living your life however you thought best. Okay, you take a break from your life for an hour or two hours, however long it took you to go offer your sacrifice, but then you got to walk away, leave it there, live the rest of your life the way that you thought you should live it. Okay, your sacrifice of worship was a brief interruption in your life. Paul says that because of the gospel, we don't gather together, offer an act of worship, and then go back to living our lives. Okay, our worship is not a brief interruption into our normal week. Our lives are true and proper worship. Okay, so you can't just show up on Sunday, offer five acts of worship in an hour or hour and a half, depending on how long-winded the preacher is and how many announcements we have that Sunday. Okay, and then you don't go back and live your life saying, okay, I've punched my ticket, now I'm just going to go live a nice, respectable life, try not to make too big a mess of things on my own, and I'll see you again next week. Okay, pagan worship says, I stop in, I drop off my sacrifice, and I go live my life. Christian worship says, I am the sacrifice, and I don't have a life because it doesn't belong to me anymore. 
Okay, so there's several questions we need to ask ourselves if we're thinking about, are we really living lives that are sacrificial, or are we just worshiping like pagans and coming and offering ourselves for an hour at a time? Okay, am I living a life of sacrifice, or am I doing my little act of worship and then walking away back to my life? All right, so a few questions I came up with this morning. There's nothing sacred about this list of questions, but I think these are a couple of good questions that we can use to kind of think about where are we on this. All right, my first question is, uh, what is your ministry? Okay, where are you using your spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ? Do you have a good answer to that question? Are you living your life as a sacrifice ministering to others. A second question. If I ask you the question, what is the attitude that you bring with you to church? Is it the attitude of offering yourself as a sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom? Or is this something you show up to late, leave early, and try to do just enough so that you don't feel guilty? Are you living a life of sacrifice? Okay, if I ask you the question, who are you encouraging to walk in the ways of Jesus? Do you have someone who's lost that you pray for regularly? Do you sacrifice the time and the effort to share the gospel with people around you who don't know Jesus? Are you living a life of sacrifice that sees the church as the be-all, end-all of who I am and my identity and I exist as the bride of Christ? Or is church to me something that I do for an hour a week and then I go live my life the way I want to? Are we worshiping like pagans who bring it and leave it? Or are we worshiping like Christians who say my life is the sacrifice? Those are two very different attitudes. If all that this church is to you is a Sunday morning experience, then you're attending a service. You're not being the church. Is that fair? All right, this leads us into verse 2. Paul says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. I remember as a kid listening to my dad preach through the book of Romans. I remember specifically him preaching on Romans chapter 12. And what I remember him saying is, the problem with a living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar. And that image stuck in my head. I just like that, right? The problem with us as living sacrifices is we keep getting off of that altar. Because the theory on this sounds really good, right? I'm going to die to myself. I'm going to live for Jesus, Okay, but then I go, and as I'm living my life, I experience these things that bring all my selfishness right back to me. Okay, and I think that instead of living a life of sacrifice, instead of loving a lot of other people, wouldn't it be a whole lot easier if I just loved me, if I just took care of me? Okay, and my selfishness keeps coming back into my life and saying, okay, David, yeah, it's great to do stuff for others, but you need to relax and take care of you. I mean, nobody can love you like you, Right? So here's where I'm at. Right? I agree with Paul that because of the gospel of Jesus, I should die to myself and live for the kingdom. And sometimes I do that. But then sometimes I also choose just to live selfishly. Okay? Sometimes my life is a living sacrifice. 
sometimes I don't want to sacrifice. Okay, because if we're honest with ourselves, we spend a lot of time conforming to the patterns of this world. You know, I remember when I was probably 12 or 13, like right at the end of middle school, beginning of high school, sometime in that period of life, uh, and my mom bought me a new backpack, okay, and there was a label on the front of the backpack that was not a brand name label. It was an off-brand backpack, okay, horror of all horrors. I was going to go to school with a backpack that was off-brand. I remember very laboriously, and it took me a long time to pull every single stitch out of that tag so that I could take the tag off of the front of my backpack so that I could go to school with a plain backpack instead of one that had a brand that I didn't recognize on the front of it. Why? Because I didn't want to be different than everybody else, right? I wanted to conform. You know, I remember also about that same time in life telling my mom, I need to have Nike shoes. He goes, why? I said, it's not so I can run faster and jump higher. It's because everybody else at school has Nike shoes. And I want to have shoes that look like everybody else's. Now, what I really want, I want to be unique, right? And what I mean when I say I want to be unique is I mean I want to be a better version of normal. Okay? I don't really want to be unique. They pick on that kid. Okay? I want to be a superior version of normal. Most people, when they say they want to be unique, they mean I want more attention. Okay? They don't really want to be outside the bounds of what's considered appropriate for the the environment that they're in, right? I mean, we could do a whole psychological study on why Randy dresses the way he dresses, but he's a nonconformist, right? We spend a lot of time in our lives conforming. It's easy to conform. It's easy to conform with the selfishness that we see around us. It's easy to conform to our own natural selfish desires. So how do we break out of that? How do we transform? How do we be not afraid to be different and be the kind of people that Jesus calls us to be? How do we move from a place of selfishness to a place of love and sacrifice? How can my life be a living sacrifice before God? Okay, notice what Paul says here in verse 2. He says, you are transformed by the renewing of your mind. We need God to transform us by renewing our minds. That's number three. We need God to transform us by renewing our minds. All right, several months ago, uh, the Olympics were on television. My wife got very excited about the Olympics, specifically women's gymnastics. When she was a kid, that was her big thing in life. She was a gymnast. So now every four years, she gets very excited about the U.S. women's gymnastics team. Now, because of the time difference on where the Olympics was, the the women's gymnastics events all happened earlier in the day, but then they didn't show them until prime time. Right? So when the whole group of girls competed for the gold medal and won it easily, right? I mean, they won it not even close. It was like the biggest margin our women's team has ever won the Olympics. It was just a blowout. Okay, but that happened earlier in the day, and I knew Rachel didn't want to know anything about what happened because she wanted to watch it in prime time. Now, I saw the news earlier in the day and knew that our girls won in a blowout. It was easy. Okay? So when we both got home that day before it started, I said to her, because I'm just a mean person, I said to her, oh, did you hear what happened to our women's team? She goes, no. And I said, Oh, well, never mind. 
And so she goes into that evening watching it on primetime on the edge of her seat, just waiting for something terrible to happen. And the whole time I'm sitting back giggling to myself, knowing nothing's going to happen. It's just going to be a breeze. Okay, about halfway through it, she looks at me and she goes, if nothing happens, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> She's forgiving, which is why I'm here this evening. All right, but when the gymnastics were on in prime time and we were watching it, we both experienced that event very differently. She experienced it full of anxiety, okay, full of excitement. All right, I didn't really care. Okay, one, because I didn't really care that much about the event, but two, I already knew exactly how it was all going to turn out, right? We experienced the exact same television event radically differently because I knew what was going on and she didn't. We had a different mind as we watched the show. Okay? When we have a transformed mind, when our mind sees the world differently, when we realize how this is all working out, when we know what the plan is, when we know what the future holds, when we have the hope that we have as Christians, we experience the exact same event that the world experiences. We just see it from two completely different perspectives. You want to know how to live your life as a sacrifice to God? It starts with having a completely different perspective. Your mind has to be transformed. Okay, so how do we get this new perspective? A lot of things we'll talk about over the next several weeks as we continue in this book of Romans. A few quick questions, though. How do we get a different perspective? One question I would ask you is, how is your prayer life? Are you regularly reflecting upon yourself and the presence of God and spending real quiet time with God? How much time do you spend dwelling in God's Word? How much time do you spend serving alongside other brothers and sisters that have the same hope that you have? How close have we drawn to God? How much have we allowed God to transform our minds? Do you spend more time worrying about the upcoming election or football games or where you can get the next smartphone? Or are we focused more on serving the kingdom of God? In our use of our own money, are we trying to make life as comfortable as possible for ourselves, or are we living sacrificially for the sake of others? We need to renew our minds. As we go to work, do we think, well, I'm working for my boss, or I'm working to get ahead, or do we think I'm really working as an ambassador of the kingdom of God? We need to transform our minds. We need to let God transform our minds. Again, we'll talk more about this in the next few weeks as we get into spiritual gifts, as we get into how the Spirit works within us to make us more like Jesus so that we can have that transformed Spirit so that we can offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Uh, at this time in our service, we're going to sing a few verses of an invitation song. During the singing of this song, I will be down front. One of our shepherds will be down front. We would love the opportunity to talk with you or pray with you about anything that's going on in your life. Uh, this song is a time where we as the church are here for you if you have any sort of need. Uh, before we sing that song, though, I'd like to close with offering a word of blessing over us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace.